Good morning. I greet you in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord. By the way, uh, Marley, who just sang so beautifully for us, got married last night. And she said, I made this commitment a long time back and I was going to keep that commitment. So I want to thank her and I want to thank her new husband for generously sharing his new wife with us. Yes. <laughs> Today we continued the messages on that Old Testament character, Joseph, from the book of Genesis. And uh, I will be reading selected verses from the 41st cha first chapter of Genesis. And if you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile, when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the river bank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek cows, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what, is about, what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It's one in the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let us pray. <clears throat> 
Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. Recently, a friend of mine sent me a photograph by email of Jim Thorpe, arguably the greatest athlete ever produced in America. And this particular photograph, which you see on your screen, is from the 1912 Olympic Games in which Thorpe competed. And if you look closely at the photograph, you will notice that he's wearing different shoes on his two feet. And there's a story behind that. On the morning of this competition at the Olympic Games, Thorpe discovered that someone had stolen his track shoes. Now, back in those days, there was not a support crew behind these athletes. They were pretty well on their own. And so Thorpe had to scrounge around and try to find some replacement track shoes. He finally found two shoes in a garbage bin. One of those shoes was his proper size. The other was larger. And so he had to wear an extra pair of socks on that shoe, with that shoe, in order to fit snugly. Dressed in that way, equipped with shoes from the garbage bin, Jim Thorpe won two gold medals. Thorpe reminds me of that Old Testament character, Joseph, whom we have been considering for the past few weeks. Like Thorpe, Joseph had a lot of bad breaks, but he was not defeated by them. Rather than complaining or making excuses, Joseph did his best and trusted God. Now, for the benefit of some of you who may not have been here the last uh, week or may not have heard these past messages, let me do a little bit of review about Joseph. When Joseph was 17 years old, he was so hated by his brothers and they were jealous of him, they wanted to kill him. But instead, along about that time, these Ishmaelite traders came by, headed for Egypt. So they sold their brother as a slave, took him down to Egypt. There he was bought by a man named Potiphar, who was the captain of uh, Pharaoh's guard, his security force. Potiphar put Joseph to work and Potiphar discovered right away that not only was this young man uh, one of tremendous talent, but God was with him. And so everything that Potiphar turned over to Joseph, everything prospered. But there was a problem. Potiphar had a hot-blooded wife with a roving eye. And she noticed handsome young Joseph. She tried countless times to lure him into her bed. He would not go. He knew that would be a sin of adultery against God and a betrayal of Potiphar. And so he said no. She became extremely angry. 
You know the old saying, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. So she falsely accused Joseph of molesting her. Now this was centuries before the hashtag Me Too movement. But Potiphar believed the woman and Joseph was thrown into prison. Even in prison, Joseph's resilient faith held firm. And the prison warden noticed the same thing that Potiphar had picked up on, that this was one capable young guy and God was with him. And so the prison warden turned more and more of the management of the prison over to Joseph and that jailhouse ran like a well-oiled machine. After a while, two officials in Pharaoh's palace, the cupbearer and the baker, ran afoul of their boss, the Pharaoh, and they were thrown into jail. In jail, they had strange and troubling dreams, and they were dejected because of that. Joseph, always the sensitive, alert manager of the prison, picked up on their problems and asked them, what's going on with you? What's troubling you? They told him their dreams. And Joseph assured them that God would give an interpretation of those dreams. And he did. Joseph gave really good news to the cupbearer and awful news to the baker. And his interpretations came true. The cupbearer was restored to his former place of service with the Pharaoh. Ah, but that baker, he was executed. Meanwhile, the fortunate cupbearer forgot altogether about Joseph. Now that brings us to chapter 41 of the continuing saga of Joseph, the man with the resilient faith. And as I tell that story today, I'm going to try to plant four key truths on your hearts. Now, most denominations would be overly stressed by four. They could handle two and definitely one. But I have such confidence in Mount Horeb. Now, if we had bulletins where you could write down, it would be easier. But COVID-19 has deprived us of those for the time being. But I'm, so I'm going to depend on your memory as I try to plant these four truths that are certainly relevant to us today. The first truth to remember is this, be patient enough to wait. Be patient enough to wait. Before the good times came, Joseph had been in prison for, well, he'd been in Egypt for 13 years and in prison probably for six or seven of those years. Yet Joseph's resilient faith did not fail him. He did his best and trusted in God. You know, nowadays, if we're going to prepare a young man, young woman for a top position, we send them to Harvard or Princeton or Stanford or Yale or Carolina or Clemson. But God prepared Joseph in a totally different way. He let him stay in prison six or seven years. He was in training there. And, he, and Joseph was patient enough to wait until God said, now is the time to elevate you. 
I confess to you that I hate to wait. I'm obsessive compulsive, but I'm in recovery. Uh, I, 15 minutes is as long as I can stand to wait for a table at a restaurant. My wife chides me about that. But as any of you who've ever been in the military can understand, when I got out of the military, I promised I'd never stand in line again. God is working on me about that and trying to teach me patience. You know, one of the most common admonitions in the Bible is wait for the Lord. And from Isaiah the prophet, we have this fantastic word about waiting. They that wait on the Lord shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not faint. Joseph was willing to wait on the Lord and so must we. In chapter 41 of Genesis, Pharaoh had two dreams that troubled him. He saw in his dream, first dream, seven fat cows came up out of the river Nile. And then seven skinny cows came up out of the river. Now it was not unusual for cows down in Egypt to wade into the river Nile because they wanted to escape the heat and the insects. Of course, they had to keep a wary eye out for crocodiles. Well, in Pharaoh's dream, the skinny cows devoured the fat cows. In Pharaoh's second dream, seven healthy heads of grain were devoured by seven thin heads of green. grain. What could that mean? So Pharaoh consulted his brain trust, all the really smart people, his wise men, all of them had attended the Egyptian equivalent of Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford. Yeah, the smarter ones had gone to Clemson and Carolina because the sports teams were better. But none of them, none of them had an answer, had an interpretation for Pharaoh's dreams. And then after two long years, don't you know that cupbearer was beating himself upside the head and said, ah, now I remember there was this Hebrew guy in prison who had the ability to interpret dreams and it really turned out well for me. Pharaoh said, go get him, bring him here. So they brought Joseph up, uh, he shaved, cleaned himself up and reported to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said, I understand that you have the ability to interpret dreams. And Joseph replied, I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Here, Joseph illustrates the second truth I want to apply to our hearts today. Brag on God, not on yourself. Brag on God, not on yourself. God revealed to Pharaoh through Joseph that seven years of bountiful crops would come and then there would be seven years of famine. And God not only revealed that, he revealed what Pharaoh should do. He said, appoint a wise man to, to head this huge conservation project and just take 20% of the total agricultural production and store it. And then you'll be ready for those years of famine. Pharaoh was so impressed that he appointed Joseph to head that huge conservation project. Pharaoh said, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? 
Then to Joseph, he said, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Imagine that. In one day, Joseph goes from prison to prime minister. So Pharaoh put a signet ring on his finger, dressed him in tailored suits, and Joseph traveled all over the country in the equivalent of Air Force Two. Now, Potiphar, the captain of the guard, was witnessing all this. And uh, remember, Potiphar was the guy who first owned Joseph years earlier as a slave. Can you imagine the conversation that evening between Potiphar and his wife over dinner? Potiphar says, honey, do you remember that Hebrew slave we had years ago? The one that you said molested you. And she says, yeah, I remember. What about that wretch? Potiphar said, well, today he got appointed prime minister of the country and he is my new boss. And if he has a good memory, you and I are in a world of trouble. Now, fortunately for Potiphar and his wife, when God dominates a human being, there's no room in his heart for revenge. He leaves that to God Almighty. Joseph bragged on God, not on himself. Humility must always be a trademark of Christians. Jesus said, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Bragging about oneself usually indicates two things. One, that you have an inferiority complex that you're trying to compensate for. And secondly, that you are distant from God. 20 years ago, Wayne Gretzky ended his magnificent 20-year career in the National Hockey League. He held virtually every personal record still holds most of those records, and therefore he has been called ever since the Great One. And on the evening of his retirement, he made a speech. It was remarkable. He didn't mention a single one of his personal accomplishments, though he held all the records. He talked about his blue-collar, hard-working father who inspired him. He talked about his teammates. He said, it's been my blessing to play with some of the greatest hockey players in the world. And then he bragged on the good Lord. He said, the good Lord just happened to give me some talents that fit really well with the game of hockey. That's what he said. And that more than all of the championship awards he got is why he rightly deserves to be called the great one. Gretzky illustrated a truth that St. Paul thought was so important, he put it in both of his letters to the Corinthians. He wrote this, let him who boasts, boast of the Lord. Now let's consider a third truth in the 41st chapter of Genesis. When God controls a person, even pagans take notice. When God controls a person, even pagans take notice. Pharaoh was a pagan, 
but he could discern the hand of God in Joseph. Potiphar, captain of the guard, discerned the same thing. So did the prison warden. Today, we live in a highly secularized America. But when we allow Christ to shine through us, even the most secularized folks notice. So Jesus taught, taught us, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works, not to praise you, but to praise your Father in heaven. God never leaves himself without a witness, even during this awful summer of racial conflict in America. Secular folks tend to look for solutions for racial conflict from the government or from education or by throwing money at the problem. But the Bible tells us that the problem resides in the human heart. It's a sin problem. If I let a different skin pigmentation make me think less of other people rather than seeing it as a positive sign of God's marvelous diverse creation, then the problem is in me. It's my problem. It's a sin problem. America saw the answer to racism five years ago in a most unlikely place. Charleston, South Carolina, Mother Emanuel Church. When a racist white man gunned down nine black people, secular America thought there would be a race riot in Charleston. Buildings would burn down. People would be killed. And it well might have happened if it had not been for Mother Emanuel Church because those people were so full of Christ that they rejected revenge and embraced forgiveness. There were many secular pagan Americans who just could not understand Charleston. What's going on with those people down there? Why are they reacting that way? But somehow they knew God was involved. Something similar happened a few weeks ago in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Jacob Blake was shot by police and some people responded with violence and riots and burning buildings. But Jacob's heartbroken mother, Julia Jackson, reacted in a different way. And she delivered perhaps the most powerful three-minute sermon I have heard in years. This is what she said. Violence and destruction do not reflect my son or my family. Take a moment and examine your heart. Whatever shade your skin is, it is beautiful. I'm talking to all races, white, black, and brown. None is superior to the others. The only supreme being is God himself. We really just need prayers. I'm praying for the police and their families. I've also been praying for the healing of our country. Let's use our hearts and love and intelligence to show the world how human beings should treat each other." End of quote. And as Julia Jackson spoke, even pagan secular folks knew that God was in that mother's heart. Even pagan secular folks 
had to stand in awe as God spoke to America through her. That brings us to the fourth truth that I want to plant on your hearts from Genesis 41. Remember, God controls history. Remember, God controls history. If you look up the word history in the dictionary, it means the record of past events. But that word history, if you add an extra S, it can be divided into two words. His story. His story. And that could mean God's story. Because when our world history ends, it's going to be revealed to have been the victory for the kingdom of God. As that old, great old hymn declares, this is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Chapter 41 of Genesis ends with the seven tough years of famine that brought disaster to the entire Middle East. Thanks to God working through Joseph, Egypt had a bountiful food supply, and that would prove to be the salvation of Jacob's family living way back there in Canaan. All of them came down to Egypt and survived. Think about it. 20 years before that famine, 20 years, God already was activating a plan to save his people. God has the last word. Now, right now, America is beginning to focus on the November election, and no doubt it will be extremely important. Vital issues are at stake, and every Christian should study the issues and pray and vote. To fail to vote because both candidates are imperfect men is a cop-out. Christians don't duck tough choices. And here's the comforting thought. Regardless of who wins that election, God will still be in control. Presidents, premiers, potentates, and popes have far less power than they think. King Solomon perceived that truth 3,000 years ago, so he wrote, there is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. You know, in many ways, this summer, these last months, have been awful in America. The combination of COVID-19 and racial conflict, riots and destruction, and political parties that seem to hate each other. But God has not relinquished control. God's not on vacation. I want you to listen to these words by the late great African-American preacher, Gardner Taylor. And as you gaze at his picture, I want you to just imagine these words that he spoke several years before he died. We will understand it better by and by. One day when the mist has rolled away and we are cured of our nearsightedness, one day when we have passed through the last valley and have drunk our last cup of sorrow, one day when heaven comes permanently our souls to greet and glory forever crowns the mercy seat, then we'll see it all from God's perspective 
And on that day, we will even thank God for every heartbreak and hindrance that pushed us in His direction and forced us to come down off our haughty high horses and seek His help. End of quote. Now next week, we're going to continue to receive God's messages through the life of Joseph. Today from Genesis 41, let us tuck these four great truths into our hearts. I want you to say them out loud with me right now. First, be patient enough to wait. Secondly, brag on God, not on yourself. Third, when God controls you, even pagans take notice. And fourth, remember God controls history. Several years ago at a conference, I heard a speaker deliver a message, a graphic message using objects to describe how different people react to crises and problems. He used an egg and an apple and a tennis ball. And he dropped each of these objects from about five feet off the floor. He dropped the egg and it splattered. He dropped the apple and it rolled a little ways, but it was bruised. Oh, but then he dropped that tennis ball. And the harder it hit the floor, the higher it bounced. Joseph, the man with the resilient faith, was like that tennis ball. Oh God, make us more like Joseph. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Let us pray. Oh, gracious God, give us the patience of Anna, that 84-year-old widow who stayed at the Jerusalem temple fasting and praying, waiting to see the baby Jesus. Give us the humility of that publican whose only prayer was, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Make our lights shine so brightly that people will notice the Christ living in us. And even when our beloved country seems to be degenerating into chaos, give us a Joseph kind of faith, remembering that the deepest darkness is just before the dawn and that this is our Father's world. We offer this prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord. Amen.